Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have exalted yourself not only in the creation of this world which echoes the creativity of your sovereign hand with every ray of sunshine, with every blooming tree, with every wave that crashes upon the shorelines of the oceans vast. We thank you, Lord, further that you have revealed yourself in your word. You have told us of your nature, your character, your worth, your works, your attributes. We thank you further that you have revealed yourself in the Word incarnate. The Word became flesh in Jesus Christ and dwelt among us. And he proclaimed the message of the kingdom to our ears. And more than this, he became the sacrifice for our sins, willingly offering his blood as the payment to wash away our iniquity. And you have shown us, Lord, by the power of these means, that you are the Lord of this universe and that you have defeated every last enemy, that you hold all things by the word of your power, and of you, and through you, and to you, are all things from history past to history future. And so we lift up your name and declare it as holy. We say, hallowed be your name in this place. I pray as we open your scriptures, that you would quiet our hearts, that you would set our soul's attention with reverence and fear upon the revelation of your holiness in your inscripturated, infallible word. I pray that you would write your words upon the table of our heart, and may the law of God be alive and well within us, so that we, as your blood-bought believers, may fulfill the new covenant promise that you will put your word upon our hearts, and we will be testimonies then to all the world of the goodness of God, saving by grace alone those who place their faith and trust in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And it's in His holy name we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. What a grace and privilege and a joy to open the Scriptures together today. I pray as we do so that the Holy Spirit will illumine our eyes, that He would give me grace to proclaim and all of us ears to hear. Turn with me in your Bible, if you would, to Matthew 25. Matthew chapter 25, our verses today, our primary text will be 14 through 30. This is the parable of the talents, one of the waiting parables, if you will, and the last great discourse in the book of Matthew. It's been preceded by the parable of the ten virgins, which we covered last week. There were five wise who had extra oil, as you recall, during that waiting period. There are five foolish who ran out of oil and were forced to go some more, but in the meantime, the door to the marriage feast was closed. And though they cried, Lord, Lord, the voice of the bridegroom echoed back, I do not know you, depart from me. Similar language as Matthew 7 indicates, where many will come in that day saying, Lord, Lord, have I not done thus and so in your name? And I will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. The air, if you will, the attitude, the environment that is described here as well as the condition of the soul to approach it, that is, the waiting time between these inter-advent periods between Christ and His revealing Himself and preaching the kingdom and when He returns, either in judgment or in His second coming, is one which requires a heightened sense of alertness. We must be aware, we must be in tune, we must be diligently connected to the vine. Otherwise, we will surely wither. This is the message today. So stand with me, if you would, with your Bible open to Matthew 25, if you're able. And let us, out of reverence for the Lord, stand for the hearing of His Word today. Matthew 25, 14 through 30. For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two and to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. And after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them, and he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. Verse 21. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. 
You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had two talents came forward saying, Master, you have delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set over you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Verse 24. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. 26. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. There is a real challenge in many ways to interpret all the elements of a parable such as this. What I have tried to do in embracing the meaning of Matthew 24 and 25 is lean a lot on the rest of Matthew. I think this is good to do in any case in Scripture to rely on the context to help us understand, fill in the blanks, and assign categories for the different elements of this parabolic language. For instance, who is the master? Who are the servants? What is a talent? How can I invest it wisely? And what does it mean when Christ says, the worthless, the lazy servant, the slothful one will be cast into outer darkness? Whereas those who are proven faithful are rewarded or commended as such, and they enter into the joy of their master. To help us do this this morning, I would like to reach beyond Matthew 25 to some territory we've already covered as we look for in the title of this morning's message, Talents in the Text. What are talents and what, is the, what do they represent? And perhaps the rest of Matthew can help fill in the gaps on that question. The multi-nature, the multifaceted nature of this interim stage of the kingdom of God continues to be a great concern of Jesus in his latter teaching ministry. There is an entire paradigm shift that is necessary for the disciples to grasp the reality of God's sovereign hand in what is unfolding redemptive history. They need an entire new shift in their thinking to understand what is of greatest concern in days such as they will soon face. I submit to you there is application for us today. The last great discourse in Matthew deals at great length with the detail and, and great length and detail with time lapses between unmistakable and spectacular divine interventions. It would be hard if the Holy Spirit opened your mind and you were there at the birth of Christ, you realized that this was the incarnation of the Son of God. It would be hard to lose your faith in that moment, would it not? And that someone might come up to you at the moment, you're, say, one of the 5,000, and the multiplication of the bread and fish has just happened before your eyes. You're stunned with amazement, your jaws dropping, and you're looking into the eyes of your powerful King and Messiah. And someone comes up to you and says, you need endurance. Doesn't really make sense, does it? Endurance? I'm looking at the one who is my Savior, my Lord. No doubt he'll overthrow Rome. I'll never go hungry again. And in light of those spectacular moments of God's divine intervention, you know, endurance is the farthest thing from the disciples' mind. But what Jesus was careful to lay out in these parables and in this section of the gospel is, by God's sovereign decree, not every moment in the life course of a Christian and in the life course of history is marked by those sovereign, spectacular, supernatural, divine interventions. In fact, most of the amazing aspect of the Christian life is demonstrated by faith in the meantime, by endurance 
when Christ is not manifestly obvious to our senses, when we can't hear Him with our physical ears, can't see Him with our own eyes, will we walk by faith, not by sight? It goes on in the gospel to declare that these times are by design to sift the wheat from the chaff, to separate the sheep from the goats. There is divine design and the way God has laid out even history to show those who are truly His. You'll remember in Matthew 24, the conditions that were to be expected by the disciples, extreme hardship, an age of lawlessness. He said by warning, in an age of lawlessness, the hearts, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel, he says, will be proclaimed through the whole world, and then the end will come. These are the conditions that he is preparing, warning, and speaking these parables about, so that there is a paradigm shift in the disciples, so that they are prepared to manifest the sovereign power of God in their faith, under trial, under fire, in difficult times. It is these times, times like the moment, or the moments, the years between the ascension and the coming of Christ in covenantal judgment over Jerusalem, for instance, or we could say, for application for us today, the apostolic age, the early church days where the uh, message of the gospel is going forward, three, 5,000 people in some cases are coming to Christ and massive waves of the Holy Spirit's sovereign hand. From that age all the way to the second coming is another interim time scripturally. And these instances, the exhortational value, the hortatory, if you will, which is the adjective form of exhortation, the hortatory value of Matthew 25 is extremely apparent. It is necessary and it, realized, and it is realized by the believer who pays attention to it as his lifeline during waiting periods such as we have it even now in the life course of a believer today. We need these parables today. We need to consider them in context and then apply them to our context. Consider again today how our text further illustrates three major themes. We've mentioned these in weeks prior. Jesus is laboring to show. He's diligent and even reiterating again and again through various means that waiting is dangerous. There are fearful uh, eventualities that fall upon those who fall asleep, who mismanage their affairs, who are not good household stewards, stewards who do not pay attention to those things that Christ has laid out as their lifeline as believers. Waiting is dangerous. Secondly, true servants are diligent. There is work that Christ has called us to do. There's not escapism. There's not negligence. There's not apathy that colors or marks the fruit of a true believer, but instead diligent labor, active stewardship, Continuing to manage his affairs in his absence, in one sense, is the idea. And thirdly, accounting is decisive. Dangerous, diligence, and decisiveness. Accounting is decisive. That means the day of reckoning. When judgment comes, where the Lord does come, return in spectacular form, that will be utterly and ultimately decisive. And at that point, there will be no ambiguity. It will clearly delineate those who had faith from those who didn't those who made a show of it on the surface, and those who clung to Christ with all their heart. For instance, in today's parable, the danger of misunderstanding the nature and word of Christ is starkly illustrated in verses 24 and 25. Notice what the lazy servant says. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. Do you notice that the mismanagement of this talent was based on an assumption of who Christ was, his master was like? This assumption was not biblical. It moved him to fear, to cower, to retreat, to hide, to mismanage, to slothfulness. Instead of confident obedience, faithfulness, and trusting the Lord to bear him up as he was diligent to proclaim his kingdom, and to obey his word. Jesus has said in the end of Matthew's uh, first great discourse, the Sermon on the Mount, he who hears these words and does them will be like a man who builds his house where? On a strong foundation. Another parable to explain the security of legitimate Christian obedience after our heart is changed, walking in the footsteps of our master, our Lord, paying close attention to his word 
not like the lawless ones who are rejected, who do not hold the Scriptures to be the ultimate authority, who do not take seriously the Word of Christ, but instead those who are faithful to build that foundation on the rock. What is the rock? The Word, the unshakable Word of Christ. His instructions, His promises, His commands. So we see the danger of misunderstanding the nature and Word of Christ in our parable today. Secondly, we see diligence illustrated in economic terms, do we not? Wise stewardship and investing throughout the parable is a picture of diligence, following the Lord, doing what He says. We see this in the testimony of the two other servants who actually did what the Master requested, what He desired. You had received, uh, upon the accounting, verse 20, for instance, you had received the five talents, came forward bringing five talents, saying, Master, you have delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. Another way of saying fruitfulness. There are different kinds of seeds we find in Matthew 10. I believe, or maybe it's Matthew 13. Matthew 13, the parable of the sower, or the parable of the soils, as it's sometimes called. And there are those who do not produce any fruit. They don't take root. They don't reproduce. But there is a special kind of soil made so I submit to you by the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. That is different than the others. It produces a fruit, a, a bountiful harvest even 30, 60, and 100-fold. Another way of saying the same thing, and so Jesus is reiterating a lot of these concepts by parable. So danger, diligence, and then thirdly in our parable, the accounting or the day of judgment is clearly anticipated. Notice verse 19. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. There is a day of reckoning. There is a day where the books will be opened. And only those names who are in the Lamb's Book of Life will receive the commendation, will receive the encouraging words, the most amazing words in all of history. Come, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of my kingdom. But at this time, there are those who fall outside this category and there is no middle ground. And we read of these at the end of the parable. For to everyone who has more, verse 29, more will be given. He will have an abundance but the one who has not, even what he has, will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into outer darkness, and that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In the prophetic language, we see a reiteration of something of the prior parable. Do you remember there was lamps that were trimmed, oil-filled, and they were shining brightly at the feast. These were the wise virgins. But there are those whose lamps burned out, and they were cast where? Well, into utter darkness. Verse 10. While they were going to buy, that is the foolish virgins, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he said, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This language illustrates to us a certain future. There will be those who dwell in the abundance of festal lights, of the joyful environment of perfect communion with the Son of God in a marriage union. This is finally pictured in Revelation chapter 18 and 19. In chapter 18, there's the judgment language. The mill, the grinding stone will be stopped. The commerce will come to a screeching halt. The voice of the bride and the bridegroom will no longer be heard in the streets and every lamp will be put out. But then the next chapter opens, and what does it say? A voice such as a multitude beyond imagination that sounds like the greatest of waterfalls join, praising, worthy is the Lamb. And they join at a feast prepared before them, saying, worthy is he who is slain. And it is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And in the next chapter or two, we read that we have no need of light there because the sun never sets and the sun is the Son of God which shines upon our bright future and the most amazing celebration of joy, love, communion, relationship that you could possibly imagine. Oh, the joy. Oh, the relief. Oh, the sigh of arrival when we finally cross that threshold of glory. Amen. Amen to that. But for those of us that are in the meantime, we need words of admonition. It is difficult to bridge the gap from here to the day when there is no more pain, sorrow, death, crying, or sin of any kind to weight us down. In that meantime, we need words of clarity, warning, admonition, 
paying attention, alertness, so that we don't fall asleep, grow weary and lax in well-doing. But instead, we, according to 2442, stay awake because we do not know the day when our Lord is coming. This is some of the context in our parable today. And uh, it might give rise to a few questions, given the sober realities of this parable, the parable of the talents. The question of application becomes all the more pressing, does it not? This parable gives rise to these questions, in my mind, too, at least. What, after all, is a talent, you might ask, so that I know what it is I'm supposed to be diligent in stewarding? Second question, how can I steward the master's property unto his glory? What is a talent, and how should I use it? I take Matthew 25, 14 through 30, the parable of the talents, as a summary parable in symbolic form, restating what he, Christ has said before already by practical and specific instruction given in at least four other places in the gospel. So as we expound these this morning, consider how, consider how they, if you will, stretch muscle and sinew over the skeletal framework of this parable, putting meat on the bones, answering questions like, what is a talent? And how can I steward my master's property unto his glory? To answer that question, I'd like to look briefly at four locations, three primarily and one just in passing towards the end, to see what talents may mean in the context, talents in the text of Matthew. The first will be in chapter 5, gospel temperament, we'll use that as a label. Second category of talent, spiritual disciplines in chapter 6. And third category of talent, relationships in chapter 10. And if we have time, we'll touch briefly on possessions themselves in the next chapter, chapter 26, verses 6 through 16. These three major points organized under this heading, investment opportunities illustrated in Matthew, or you could say four types of talents in Matthew. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. As you're turning there, you may wonder the word talent itself, what did it refer to in the economic environment and lexicon of the day. Well, a talent was, as I understand it, the largest known denomination of money. Our denominations go up to $100 bills, but imagine if you had a half a million dollar bill. That would be closer to what a talent was. We were told that a talent was worth about 20 years wages of a common laborer. So if you took a baseline, now this is this is highly fallible information because I'm trying to endeavor into the field of mathematics right now. But if you use $35,000 as a baseline for a yearly wage, multiply that by 20, what is that? Maybe $700,000 or thereabouts? So in today's language, economic terms, a talent might be $700,000. So it is quite an important responsibility. And you can see in this imagery that 700 grand, I mean, you would take that in a heartbeat, would you not? If someone handed it to you in an envelope, what would you do with that envelope? Well, you probably wouldn't stop looking at it until it was deposited in a bank or in a safe place. You wouldn't just throw it, you know, shove it halfway into your hip pocket and then go jogging, finish the rest of your tour, you know, get you, I got to get my exercise. Why? Because the time you're done, the 700000 in cash, if you could fit it in your pocket, would be laying there on the ground. So the imagery is helpful, is it not? What God has given us as a blessing and consequence of the gospel is extremely valuable. Do we consider it so? In our sin, are we more likely to steward well and pay close attention to $700,000 than what is the fruit of the gospel? Things like gospel temperament that we see in Matthew 5? If the answer is yes, and I know in my life it often is yes, the answer is, the next answer has to be repentance. What to do about this? Repent. Lord, I am sorry because I have not considered poverty of spirit as valuable as $700,000. Help me to be humble and meek and poor in spirit. And those are our first three talents we'll consider this morning. The Beatitudes. We're familiar with these, but let us consider them in the paradigm and perspective that the parable of the talents lays out. Matthew 5, 3, Jesus had opened his mouth. He begins to teach them in this first great discourse, Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
Blessed are the meek, for they shall what? Inherit the earth. Now here we have three temperaments, if you will, that are listed. The first three beatitudes connected with a reward and a promise. Those who genuinely, as a fruit and consequence of the gospel, demonstrate poverty of spirit, the ability to mourn, and a meekness of heart, they will inherit the earth. They will hear, that is to say, enter into the joy of my kingdom, thou good and faithful servant. Gospel temperament, first of all, is illustrated in these three examples by a willingness to lose. What are we willing to lose on account of Christ? Now, this is counterintuitive. How is it that a talent, a big sum of money, is actually letting go of something? Well, this is the way the gospel works. A willingness to let go of ourselves, not serve our own glory, and instead embrace the humble and contrite condition of what it means to admit that we are a sinner and then to point to Christ alone as our Savior and identity, that is a huge talent. That is the $700,000 in, uh, in economic terms of value that needs to be properly considered and invested. How do we invest such a thing? We do so by acting like sinners saved by grace. We do so by not doing what the Pharisees did, seeking the most prominent positions, always leveraging, negotiating to get ourselves recognized. We do so by caring more about the image and glory of God than our own image and our own honorable you know, perception in the minds and the eyes of others. Simple things, yet very profound, difficult to accomplish, but absolutely necessary. And they are talents, I submit to you, that when sown... And when properly uh, invested in, such as poverty of spirit, willingness to mourn, and meekness, will produce fruit. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Are you willing to endure loss for the cause and name of Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you willing to set aside your own personal dignity and relationships with those who are happy to hang out with you so long as you have some common ground you know, not too much, but a little, in the secular paganism that describes a good time in our day and age. Are you willing to lose that? Are you willing to mourn the loss of some things that were gained to you in order that you may gain Christ, put it another way, in apostolic language? If you do, if you invest in these things, invest in things that cause a certain loss or a certain change in your condition. That and the surface seems to put you out, but it is an investment in the glory of Christ because to the degree that you decrease and diminish, He increases and is shining forth through your humble life. This is a great and powerful fruit-bearing exercise in the kingdom of God. The good John the Baptist did so when he said, I must decrease, he must increase. He could have gained a following such that it was unparalleled by nearly every prophet that went before. Do you remember the popularity of his messages? Wandering in the wilderness and the whole region comes out to hear him. Today we set up shop in mega churches and we craft our messages to be seeker sensitive. We do all this kind of attractional stuff just to get people to come in. John in his camel's hair, clothing, and eating locusts and honey, wandered out into the wilderness where, the civil, where civilization couldn't be found for miles, and he had a train of followers that, by the thousands that followed him into these regions. He could have started a movement. He could have exalted himself as a great spiritual champion. He could have written his autobiography and sold millions of copies. He could have commissioned scribes to follow him around and write down his every word. He could have been the most prominent spiritual figure up to that time that ever lived, but he did not do so. Why? Because he invested in a loss of himself in order that Christ might be magnified. When he was asked to be baptized by Christ, he said, I have need to be baptized from you. When his followers said, who should we follow? He said, not me, the one who is coming, his sandals I am not worthy to unloose. He said again as he pointed, behold the Lamb of God, I must decrease, he must increase. John the Baptist, by this example, was investing talents in the kingdom. He was willing to lose something of his own significance, of his own you know, priority in order that Christ might be known. The meekness, the, mourn, the mourning, and the poverty that John the Baptist endured 
was just one example of talents well invested. His last words were not a glorious, you know, celebration. He wasn't carried on the shoulders of cheering throngs, but instead he died a death of shame. His head received on a platter by one of the wicked rulers because he, he was willing to suffer even the loss of his own head for the word and truth of God. It is not right, no matter who you are, O king, to take this incestuous marriage or what have you. And so John the Baptist passed away, not with the you know, cheering of the crowds, and there was no funeral with the whole cavalcade and motorcade of cheering or, or, or of uh, a mourners reaching into the distance, but he has that now. Now he rules and reigns at the right hand of Christ. He is seated and re- having received in heaven the glories of the kingdom. And he has received that word, welcome, good and faithful servant, as just one example of what it means to take the opportunity to sow talents into the kingdom that will produce a return, something that modern man cannot appreciate or even understand. But when the Lord changes our heart, can be something that is more valuable than any goal this earth can measure. Second category of gospel temperaments, what do we endeavor to gain? We've talked about what we are willing to lose. Are there things that we pursue? Verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. A diligence, an affinity, a particular close attention, an applicational effort as we read the scriptures to what is right, just, and true. This is a hunger. We should feel famished if we lack this in our lives. We should open the scriptures diligent to uh, process them because they contain the words of life. Secondly, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Looking for opportunities to forgive someone, looking for opportunities to extend grace as we have received it, and by definition that means it's not deserved. Extending mercy to those who are well-deserving of perhaps some kind of offense or your ire, that is an opportunity, something to gain. We look to that, the mercy extended to us, opportunities to share it with others. This means that offenses come as an opportunity to demonstrate the gospel for us, and this is how we invest kingdom talents. That is counterintuitive. We are not wired this way in our flesh. We must walk in the Spirit to do these kinds of things, but as we do, they will produce fruit. The assurance of salvation will bubble over with joyful expectation of our reward and glory when we, according to verse 8, seek purity of heart, another example. So what are we willing to lose? What do we endeavor to gain? Purity of heart, holiness, without which no one will see God. Mercy extended to others as we've received it. And a, a desire, an unquenchable thirst and hunger for the righteousness of the Lord. And final category under gospel temperament, what are talents in Scripture and how might they be invested? We see perseverance and conflict. Blessed, verse 9, are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Again, a promise connected to a temperament or to a talent, those who seek to make peace, those who embark upon a ministry of reconciliation because they're well affiliated and closely uh, in line with and don't lose the first love of their own reconciliation to the Lord. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. Again, reward language. Enter into the joy of my kingdom, thou good and faithful servant, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Those who persevere in conflict. This is the theme of Matthew 5. It's also the theme of Matthew 24 through 25. Remember, a tribulation is going to come upon the church such as history has never recorded in the past. Many false Christs will come with deceptive words, leading astray even the elect, if it were possible. And in this day and age of lawlessness, the hearts of many will tend to grow cold, but he who endures to the end will be saved. It is under these conditions where living out your Christian faith costs a whole bunch, where you have to pay a high price because it is not popular, it is not well received in the cultural environment in which you live. This is an opportunity to invest true talent into the kingdom of God. This is an opportunity to take, to invest for God's glory, not our own. Those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, 
know something of the kingdom of heaven, its virtues and its value, more so than the pampered age who follows Christ because it's popular. They may hear that word one day, depart from me, I never knew you. Meanwhile, those who are conditioned in the crucible of affliction may hear, come in, good and faithful servant. Verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Notice that language again reminds us, does it not, of the master-servant relationship in Matthew 25. We are to take care and manage well the accounts or the estate of the master. When we do this, and it is not met with attaboys and slaps on the back, but instead with reviling and cursing, will we consider it a talent well sown? Blessed are you, after all, Christ himself says, when they utter things against you falsely on my account. You may take an unpopular position because you know it is stewarding the house well, managing the affairs of the servant. It is not met with glees and accolades, you know, glee and accolades from the culture around you. However, when you are reviled, when you are scourged, when you are made fun of on account of him, this is an investment in his glory. Yes, you have more opportunity to embrace poverty of spirit, mourning, and meekness under these conditions. But look how much glory Christ will get in, in, in the same circumstance. And that is the point. Finally, the reward language comes to the fore in Matthew 5.12. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. And that's where we are to look. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And if those prophets, as a brief aside, think about it, if they had not been willing to endure for the glory of Christ, the persecution of those harsh conditions, proclaiming with authority and no compromise the word of Christ, those who had received the Bible in their hands would have had nothing to look at when, they, when asked the question, where is or what is the word of God? It was the testimony of the prophets before who under the most difficult circumstances did not compromise on the word of God that God used as talent sown to actually produce the written scriptures. It was those who, was, who were willing to guard the law with their life, to hide it in the wall in a day when books were and scrolls were being burned. It was those who treasured it so in the day of the king when it was found in the wall and then read before the people. It was the scribes who labored painstakingly to transcribe every jot and tittle of the text so that we can have it today. It was these kinds of labors, these kinds of talent investments that indeed produced the word of God. And in a similar way, as we labor under harsh conditions, that invested talent will also produce fruit. Not the written word of God, but the testimony to the word of God through a life lived out in faith and through disciple making, going forth into all the world, even nations, and, and giving them the scriptures and giving them evidence in our life lived, testimony of faith under harsh conditions that God uses to draw through the hearing of the word more into the sheepfold of his glorious harvest barns, if you will, to mix metaphors. Anyway, as we look at this, we see that the investment opportunities illustrated in Matthew fall well under this title or this heading of gospel temperament in Matthew 5. These are talents. This is how we invest them. Next, let's move over to spiritual disciplines in the next chapter. Four types of talents in Matthew, gospel temperament, and now spiritual disciplines. There's four, sacrificial giving, prayer, forgiveness, and fasting. But they cannot be invested in a way that would serve ourselves, otherwise they are no talents at all, I submit to you. Beware, for instance, first we have the warning language in 6.1, of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. And so we see again the same theme, do we not? If we practice righteousness to be seen by others, whose glory are we serving? The master? Are we taking good care? to maximize his treasure, which is his glory, his renown, his name, his testimony? No. And in fact, what are we doing? We're stealing from him to glorify ourselves. How much worse is it than even just burying a treasure to actually take the treasure of the word of God and use it to exalt ourselves? I'm so righteous. I'm so holy. Look at me. I pray like the, Pharise like the good Pharisee all, you know, and, and give of alms so, and make sure that everyone sees and so on. So we see here, 
that we have the idea of talent in practicing righteousness, but we also have the investment opportunity clearly laid out as one that must serve His glory and not our own. For then we will have no reward, it's told to us. Again, the reward language connected to this, if we do our righteousness just to be seen by others, then we'll have no reward from our Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. What is their reward? We find in our parable today, do we not, that it's cast out into the outer darkness. It is a lightless future. It is a joyless future. It is hell itself. Verse 3, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will do what? He will reward you. So here we see the reward of, of the talent well invested is done so when we pay attention to his glory and we practice our righteousness, in this case by giving, in a way that maximizes His kingdom, His name, His fame, His renown, His glory. Verse 5, the second category of spiritual discipline, prayer. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in synagogues and at street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Again, what is that reward? Well, when the sheep and goats are separated, they will find themselves in the goat pen. When the wheat and chaff are separated by the winds of the summer threshing floor, they'll find themselves consumed by fire. There's another category, though, graciously, praise the Lord, verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Here we have these famous words. Think of them as we read. Our Father in heaven, <clears throat> priority one, hallowed be your name. We continue, verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Pausing there. May there be an increase a multiplication in your estate, O Lord. May your name be championed, echoed, manifest, glorified, heralded, trumpeted throughout this earth. And in so doing, let your kingdom advance so that your faithful subjects live for your word, your law, your truth, your glory, your renown. This is the picture, the priority of prayer. This we pray will be the condition on earth as it is in heaven. This kind of prayer, this kind of heart attitude in desire sought by the believer paying attention to the scripture is talent well invested. And this is what we have by example. Exemplary prayer in Matthew 6 goes on, verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And again, all this gospel language comes to the fore, having remembered the debt we are forgiven, we forgive others. He goes on to say as much again in verse 14 and 15, and we confess our dependency, utter dependency on the daily bread that God supplies by His sovereign hand each and every moment we open our mouth to eat. Verse 13, and finally, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Or you could say by application, May I have grace to embrace your means and to invest true kingdom talents so that I do not fall asleep, grow weary, and are a lazy investor for the kingdom, wrestling with slothfulness, not paying close attention to the priorities of the gospel and God's great name. Lead me away from that temptation. Deliver me from that evil. Then the third spiritual discipline, verses 14 and 15, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And again, it seems counterintuitive. If you are going to release somebody from the debt they owe you because of an offense taken, it doesn't seem like a net gain, does it? It seems like a net loss. Why must I suffer this way? Why must I put myself in this position? Our flesh rails and asks. When you demonstrate forgiveness, 
and your relational interaction, when the opportunity is provided, it is an opportunity to multiply fruit for the kingdom of God. There's nothing real impressive about a fellowship that meets together because they all have video games in common. I mean, think of all the stupid societies, chat rooms, Facebook groups in our society today. Oh, I love classic cars, so I get together online and share tips on how to, you know, make my uh, old ride into something beautiful. And we all meet at the state fair and we show each other these shiny engines and chrome pipes and whatever. Or I'm really into fishing. This and that. I mean, there's a million trivial pursuits that in this world bind people together in something of a relationship. It's not very impressive. Oh, so you guys all love a particular religious idea. Oh, I understand that. I get together with all my buddies and we crochet. We, we love to quilt. And so we bought a machine and now there's, you know, 12 ladies that get together and do that. Or I like to tie fly fishing, you know, lures with my buddies. I don't be offended by any of these examples. Obviously, they're off the top of my head. Maybe I should use one that's a little bit more self-incriminating to me. Get together and talk theology. Yeah, well, and, and they're my, my best buds online. We always have something to talk about. We get together and do these things. Well, from the world's perspective, it's not very impressive. People know what it's like to have shared communion about a shared interest. But here's what is impressive. Here's what is unique and different about the Christian life. When there is legitimate opportunity to hold an offense and you simply forgive, when you lay down your life on account of a higher relationship than the one that's causing you pain right now, when you do that, that is true kingdom investment. That's the $700,000, if you will, talent cash value of the true Christian life. Brothers and sisters, be encouraged. The presence of conflict, the presence of trial, the presence of difficulty, and the fires of affliction provide us in numerous ways the opportunity to show forth the gold of what the true Christian life really is. What does Paul say? I'm hard-pressed but not crushed, struck down but not destroyed. He says we hold this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing glory on the inside might be seen. The weakness of our flesh and the external has a divine purpose, as a clay pot breaks down, as there's cracks in the surface, just like any other frail and fallen human being, when the gold of Christ starts shining through, that is what makes the Christian church unique. Invest that talent in gospel living. Do so, and you will receive the affirmation, the testimony, the smiles of heaven upon you. And one day you will look forward to receiving that great reward. Finally, fasting. Again, in the same, along the same lines, verse 16, When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Again, that reward language. <clears throat> but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may be seen by others, not seen by others, but by your Father, again, who is in secret, and your Father who is in secret, will reward you. Gospel temperament, spiritual disciplines, and finally this morning, relationships. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. Again, what are we looking for? We're looking for the answer to the question, what is a talent and how can I, do, how can I invest it? God has given us talents in, in relationships. In Matthew 18, for instance, there's that admonition that we should take so seriously, that it's better to have a millstone hung around your neck and cast into the sea than to deceive one of these little ones, a little impressionable soul who is simply entrusting, trusting you to keep them safe and give them truth is the example of a gospel relationship when stewarded well produces talents 30, 60, and 100 fold. Parents, consider this in your relationship with your children. Do not mislead your children by straying from gospel-centered activities in your relationships, your communication with them in the activity of your home. But look to Deuteronomy 6 and 11 for the application that is forever applicable, again reinstituted, reinstated in Ephesians 6 to place upon the doorposts of your schedule when they rise up and lie down, go in and go out the word of God. And as we do so, what are we doing? We're investing talents through relationships that will produce fruit. We trust by this that our children will be fruitful plants around our table, 
Roots deep in the gospel, fruit abounding for the kingdom of God. That always brings joy to my heart to see bigger and bigger vehicles filling this parking lot. But if those vehicles are not filled with children who are raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, the talent has not been well invested. But within those vehicles going to and fro, we have children that are receiving the instruction of Jesus Christ. Now we are talking talent investment. Now we are talking multiplication and return. It's not just parents who are called to do this. Listen to who else is called to do so in Matthew 10, verse 31. 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Acknowledging Christ in our relationships, this is to say before men, living as a a redeemed, regenerate, in the process of sanctification, Christian individual before the world, before those that we come in contact with. This is one of the talent investment opportunities that is part and parcel to the Christian life. The relational testimony of simply living in light of Christ's transforming work in this fallen world. Secondly, verses 34 and following. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Notice verse 38. That was an example of this principle. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The Bible doesn't just speak in theological abstracts like just sow talents and just take up your cross. It gives specific examples. In this case, taking up your cross is willing to bear the brunt of broken relationships, not because of something that you've done, but because of who Christ's name is, even in the most close and trusted and secure of all human interaction within our own family itself. Are we willing to lose our life even in the context of earthly relationships. If we do so, let me tell you one thing that will be real. You will understand God is your father. If you're willing to be disassociated, disowned by your own parents in this life, you cannot really do so in a way that makes any you know, long, stable sense or conviction unless you understand the adoption of Christ, unless you understand that God the Father is now your father, And through Christ, you have union with him. In this way, this relationship becomes the guiding light and the paradigm for all other relationships. There is a hierarchy here. And so it is now that you are a son or a daughter of God himself. You live firstly to honor your parents first, right? And so your parents, as far as God himself is concerned, is your primary allegiance And then your honoring of relationships underneath that falls into priority under that guiding principle or truth. This is talent well invested. Losing our life for Christ's sake, taking up our cross, loving him when it costs the love of others. Loving Christ when it costs the love of others. That is talent well sown. Finally, receiving his disciples. 40 through 42. Whoever receives you, Christ says, receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is righteous will receive a righteous person's reward. And you'll notice in all three texts today, the language of reward closes each one. Whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple Truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. There will be a return on the investment. There will be talents pouring back into the kingdom of God. This kind of relationship of loving and sacrificing for the body of Christ, from the greatest to the least, is something that marks the obedient Christian as he seeks to embrace opportunities to invest kingdom talents for a return for the Lord and his glory. 
Let's close this message this morning by turning to Matthew 26. Again, four types of talents in Matthew. We've considered gospel temperament. We've considered spiritual disciplines. We've considered how relationships can be a type of talent. But I submit to you in the passage that follows Matthew 25, we have material possessions themselves demonstrated in back-to-back accounts as talents. And notice how different it is to the eye of of the average beholder, yet how much glory to Christ and how much of a testimony of faith it provides to the world. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany, we have in 26.6, in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, notice, of very expensive ointment. So here's your $700,000 worth of ointment, if you will. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. When the disciples saw it in John 12, as an aside, identifies the woman as Mary and the representative disciple as Judas in this account. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? That's man's unbelieving view. You call this investment? No, this is waste, you foolish Christian, pouring out material opportunity for the sake of the gospel? What are you doing? For this could have been sold. Here's the justification, verse 9. This could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. You know, of course, the insinuation is, wouldn't that be a more worthy cause? Verse 10. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. I said that in the tone that I imagine Jesus might have had, a rebuking and corrective voice. Why? Because this woman was manifestly demonstrating a perfect example of material possessions as a legitimate kingdom-building talent investment, and it was being mocked and judged as something wasteful and foolish by those around her. Jesus goes on to describe the value of this step, of this action, verse 12. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Is there a more worthy cause? If what you do in pouring out your life is for the sake of the gospel, in anticipation, in proclamation of what Christ has done, died for sinners, embraced Calvary, bled out for the propitiation of our own wickedness, Is there any better investment? No. Now notice what Jesus says again in the language of affirmation and reward. Verse 13, Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And this we are doing right now. In fulfillment of Jesus' own words. We are telling of this example of talent investment, where material possessions were poured out for the sake of the gospel and returned millions and millions fold, too many to count, to the benefit and encouragement of believers who would be born 2,000 years later after this woman broke this flask of ointment. Finally, 14 and 15 and 16. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? Of course, speaking of Christ. What did they pay him? 30 pieces of silver. From that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Notice the the circumstances could not be more polar opposite. In the one case, it was pouring out material possessions for the glory of God. In the other place, it was betraying Christ himself for material gain. This is the difference between the way the world thinks And the way a believer lives. I'd encourage you. Take stock of your own heart. By the standards that we've studied today. And see what would be your inclination. Under any or all of these circumstances. And as we find ourselves falling short. Embrace the gospel. Embrace this message. Go back to scripture. Ask that the Lord would make us. Poor in spirit. Humble. Meek. Hungering and thirsting. For righteousness. Willing to endure persecution. For his name's sake. Counting it joy in order that we will receive that eternal reward. 
And those words of affirmation, unparalleled in the universe, thou good and faithful servant, enter in to the joy of my kingdom. Let us close in prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for your correction. We thank you for the exhortation of your word. We thank you that you're faithful to lead us and to guide us into truth. As we examine our heart in light of the scriptures, let the hunger and thirst build for what you have ordained, which you have laid out for us, so that we are more faithful to follow you as you prescribe. Lord, if there are any here who fall outside of the wedding feast, if they were to die today, if they would not be received, even though they cried, Lord, Lord, because they do not know you, I pray that the gospel, the word spoken, would prick their heart, spark in them faith, that they would confess faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, and that they would ask someone to explain them to them the gospel. They would share their own testimony or share their own testimony of their understanding. I thank you, Lord, for these moments that you've given, and I pray that they would produce the fruit that we see in your scriptures, that by the proclamation of your word, talents would be gained for the kingdom of God, that we would be diligent household stewards, that we will be faithful investors, looking forward to the day of your soon return, because we are ready, diligent about what you have given us to do. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.